0: For a long time, I've wanted you to meet my friend, Joy. Joy works at Way FM, and recently her team went through a StoryBrand private workshop to help them clarify their message. You're going to love Joy's story.
1: Some of the problems that we were having before the workshop is that we all had, I think, different ideas of what our company was aiming to do and what our goals were. And so because there were so many different ideas and so many cooks in the kitchen, I think we all were doing the best we could to live out the idea that we had as our Goal and our defining statement, but they didn't all line up. The private workshop got everybody on the same page in a really simple way because there was a facilitator. And oftentimes we all are sharing what's important for our department and what we deal with every day, but having one person there just really streamlined that we all can come together at least in one area and one goal, and he was able to take all those ideas and magically make it into like one thing. One of the ways that my job's gotten easier since doing StoryBrand is that every single day, I think I have a new filter with which to run through everything I'm doing and make sure it's aligning with the goals of the company so that it's going to be the best success that it can.
0: At StoryBrand, we see this all the time. Your team is fired up, they're charging forward, but you're not caning ground because everyone is going in a different direction. Our private workshops are a great way to get your team united around a common goal. I'm so glad it worked out for Way FM, and I know it will work for you. Thanks for your story, Joy. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host JJ Peterson. Hi, JJ. Hi, Don. JJ, I got bad news for you. Go. I know you like donuts. Yes. Donuts. Most people do know. Are not a breakfast food. Donuts um. are desserts. It's a piece <laughs> of cake. That you should eat only after dinner. They make no sense. I it is a you, marketing racket. I need you racket.
2: to stop. You literally take you a piece stop. of cake, you punch a I, hole in the middle, you call it something else, you sell it for breakfast, done, and morons buy it. It is done. the dumbest. I need you to stop right now. Second thing. <laughs> JJ, second that, thing. No. JJ, the song at the end of March Madness National Championship, oh, One
0: Shining Moment, yes, is the melodramatic and silly. It is almost as silly as donuts.
2: I wish people could see the smoke coming out of my brain right now. <laughs> I don't even know why you're saying these things that are the most JJ, hurtful things you've ever said is to me. My real no, question I don't even know if I want to talk to you right that now. You please okay, I turn don't, on. No, let me explain you what's happening. My heart is beating so the fast. The rational right now.
0: part of your brain has turned off. I have you now operating out of your limbic system. I, you cannot even think appropriately. No, I'm tearing up. And that's the point of today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> the point of today's you episode so
2: is how can you, you manage? So mean. Your emotions. Oh my god. How do you do
0: it? How do you go from being livid angry to calm in only a few uh, seconds? Today's guest helps us uh, figure it out. JJ, I personally want to apologize. That to you. was
2: so scary.
0: Donuts are indeed a breakfast food and they're legitimate.
2: Thank
3: you. And
0: even though One Shining Moment is melodramatic Don't, and antiquated no, as a closing allowed, song, no. I understand why you would like oh it. Oh my It gosh. has a Disney feel. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm still recovering here. <laughs> <laughs> honestly though honestly if you will go with me here okay what do you do uh-huh. when somebody makes you mad
2: well i was about to throw my headphones at you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we're really saying um, <laughs> oh my gosh um for real like what do i do yeah um, like how do you calm yourself how do down? i calm myself down i breathe deep i stop and i breathe deep and if i'm in like in a situation i'll be in the situation for a while like say somebody you really were confronting me with those things we would have a discussion but right after i would have to go for a walk yeah like i would walk out of here i don't want to talk to anybody i've got to go outside i don't care if it's raining i don't care if it's snowing i'm going outside i'm going for a walk i'm breathing deep and most of the time i'm repeating something to myself going you're going to be okay you're gonna be okay. <laughs> like the fact that Don just tried to destroy <laughs> two of the most important things in your two, emotional. Two pillars, life of two pillars of JJ's Western civilization. And I you're gonna be okay. <laughs> so it's breathe deep, take a walk, and kind of a little bit of strategies. You're gonna be okay.
0: Okay. I have a new strategy for you. Okay. It comes from today's guest. Okay. Sean Webb wrote a book called Mind Hacking Happiness. Uh-huh. It is one of the most interesting books I've ever dove into, if you will. Uh-huh. I take his advice and I do this. I say to myself, the me is angry. And I separate myself from myself. The me is angry. The me is angry. Interesting. I am not angry. Yeah. The The me me is is angry. Oh, wow. And it works. Okay. It immediately removes yourself from the emotions that you're feeling and you can see them objectively. Mm -hmm. To get there, though, is a long conversation that we have on this recording. I basically say, Sean, you got to walk me through this. Yeah. Here's what's fascinating about Sean Webb. And you're going to find out what the me is angry really means in the process of neuroscience and psychology. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about Sean, though, is he is not a clinical psychologist. He No, that's not where he figured all this stuff out. He figured this stuff out creating video games. Ah. He's a very, very smart tech guy, worked as a creator of video games, and he had to figure out how to make people inside of games, characters, fictional characters inside of games, respond and react like humans. Yeah. So he had to basically say, my character needs to know when to get angry and when to get sad and when to get... So he had to study why we get angry, why we get sad, why any of things happen. And then he said to himself, wait a second, if I'm controlling them and deregulating, if you will, their emotions, mm-hmm. why don't I just do it with myself? And then he created essentially an algorithm or an explanation about why emotions work the way they work. Wow. And it has three parts, and they are fascinating. Yeah. But the three parts of why your emotions work the way they work are dials that you can adjust. Interesting. On the fly. Wow. And he actually argues and says that he has not been unhappy in over 10 years. Really? Yep. <laughs> and he does not argue with his wife. This, by the way, is a man who, they have foster kids, they've adopted kids, he's one of the most generous, big-hearted human yeah. beings on the planet. He's a normal guy. Yeah. And I actually think, I don't think clinical psychologists maybe would have come up with this. Mm. He's the guy who goes to NASA and gives lectures on artificial intelligence. And here's the other thing. Here's a teaser. Yeah. I have never, since the days of Blue Like Jazz and some of the memoirs that I've written, I've never openly talked about how my faith has evolved until the end of this interview. Really? It's at the end of this interview. And it actually hasn't theologically evolved much at all. Yeah, But more has become open to me where yeah. I'm kind of going... Maybe when Jesus said this, he wasn't talking about the way the evangelicals are defining it. He was actually talking about this. Yeah. And there's some spiral dynamics in there, there's some other stuff. So if you're curious about that, that's at the end of the yeah. interview, because Sean has been on a spiritual journey from evangelicalism to wherever he's at now. He's way different than I am in, in some of that stuff, but I have enormous respect
2: yeah. for the way his mind works, and so I'm curious. Well, the me is very interested. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. What an amazing transition. See, now I'm learning from you. You're, now I'm picking up on yeah, the master of transitions. Master transitions. Uh-huh.
0: The me is also interested, and I'm glad the you is interested. Maybe uh, the listeners' Maybe you the us. will also... The us will will be interested <laughs> yeah. in this as well. Yeah, You know, it's helped so much, and I'll get some practical application when we're done. Yeah. The book is Mind Hacking Happiness. There's volume one and volume two. Volume one is all the brain science, here's how it works. Volume two gets into Zen Buddhism and all sorts of other stuff. I haven't read volume two yet. I'm only on volume one. The other thing that is fascinating about what he says yeah. is, you know, the reason that you get angry or upset is because your sense of self is being triggered in some way or affected. The only thing that you get really upset about are attachments that you have to things including brands. Mm. So he really unpacks why the story brand idea of aspirational identity works. Yeah. And it's fascinating. So the objective though, for you listening to this interview is, can you really control your emotions in the moment? Yeah. Can you do it? And he's saying with neuroplasticity, you can train at this, and you can get good at it, and he's done it, and he's helped a lot of other people do it. Maybe he can help us. Here is my conversation with Sean Webb. Sean
3: Webb, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me.
0: Hey, listen, in the introduction, JJ and I talked a little bit about where you've come from and your career, the whole idea of making video games, artificial intelligence, that sort of thing. It's interesting because you're not a clinical psychologist. No. And you're not a practicing Buddhist or Buddhist monk or whatever. No. You came at all of this stuff from the left flank. Yes. And to me, I think everybody should now have to come to it from the left flank because it makes a lot more sense. (laughs) Trying to figure out why human beings do whatever in the heck it is that we're doing and how to not wreck ourselves in the process.
3: Yeah, and that's basically how I started with the whole process of, you know, inner discovery that kind of led to this whole thing that has birthed from this is, you know, I was trying to figure out my own limitations and the stuff that was creating my own, you know, crap, I guess. Right. Is a great word for it. The things that were, you know, inhibiting me from being happy all the time based on, you know, cuz I'd had this early success with business and with professional life and, you know, my personal life was good. And then there was this moment of, you know, I'm still not happy. And I have all these trappings of wealth and success and, you know, all this other stuff. And it's like, but there's still something in there that's not right. And so I wanted to start digging within to figure out what that was.
0: What you came up with and what you realized and what you discovered isn't anything new. This isn't anything that people haven't been talking about for thousands of years. What is unique about you though, Sean, is you explained it in such a way that Pretty much anybody could understand it if they applied themselves a little bit. You know, Hacking Happiness is your first book, and there's volume one and volume two. I really want to explain the framework in which you help us understand why we feel anger, why we feel sadness, why we feel joy, why we feel fear, why we feel boredom, all that stuff. First of all, why we feel it, and then second, how we can, you know, step outside of that feeling and just downregulate some of those feelings when they're out of control. If you will indulge me, because I learn more by teaching than anything else, can I teach you what I learned in your book and then you tell me where I'm wrong? Please. Okay. Okay, so basically happiness comes from two things. It comes from low expectations about what is going to happen— And then a high perception of how good the thing that happened actually was anyway. Am I on to something there? Let's just stop there. You know, they talk about the happiest country in the world, I think, is Norway or Finland. And the reason that they're so happy is literally because they have low expectations about life. (laughs) (laughs) And you would actually think that would make them sad. But a lot of people think when you say, hey, have low expectations about life, they actually think you're talking about the second thing, which is your perception of reality should not be low. It should actually be extremely high. In other words... If you drop a bunch of spaghetti on the floor, you shouldn't say, dadgummit, I'm such a clutch. You should say, well, that made a pretty Jackson Pollock-like painting on the floor. And if you have that attitude about life, you're going to be happy. But you got to go in with low expectations and high perception. What do you call the second part? Low expectations is easy to say. What do you call the second part?
3: Well, so the science that you're touching on there is exactly how the nervous system works, Right. Our nervous system and mass is just a big comparator, and it's always comparing just two things. Right. And so when you put your hand on the stove, it never says, hey, this is 180 degrees, we need to move our hand. It says, hey, this is hotter than it was a second ago. <laughs> and so then it sends you the difference signal, and you jerk your hand off the stove. Well, your emotions come to be in the same exact process, right? Because your emotions are created by your nervous system, inclusive of your brain. And the two things that it looks at are your expectation and or preference about whatever it is. And then a perception about whatever it is, with your appraisal of whether that's good or bad, like an event that comes in to your perception or a headline or a piece of information or whatever it is, and then that creates an emotional reaction based on those two. Now, your expectation or preference sounds like something that we choose, but more accurately, it is something that is set automatically by the nervous system based on the things that you care about. And the rule of thumb is anything that you care about, be it your favorite sports team or your business project at work or the people in your life or you know the stuff around you that you own, that rule is it must be held at status quo or increased in value or we're going to have a problem. We're going to have some type of negative reaction.
0: Right. So there is a status quo that we're all experiencing, and that's very subjective. Yes. But we're all experiencing a status quo. Anything that improves upon that status quo is going to give us a kind of a happier emotion. And there's a bunch of those. Anything that threatens or diminishes that status quo is going to give us a negative emotion. True. Okay. And so just the realization of that gives us knobs with which we can turn to affect our emotions in real time.
3: Yeah. Because when you talk about adjusting your expectation, like to lower your expectation, then that's exactly what you're doing is you're going in and you're saying, okay, I'm going to lower my expectation that, you know, okay, my previous want was that I want my team to win the Super Bowl, and I want it to be a really close, exciting game. And so you can release the fact that, you know, if it's a blowout on your side, you'll say, okay, great, we won the Super Bowl, but the game sucked. You can release that and set your expectations differently to say, I don't care if we win by 100 points or, you know, one point. I just want the win then that'll increase your happiness overall as a result of the game because you're setting your expectations. Or like if you go into a business meeting and you say, you know, I want these 10 things to occur. Well, you know, okay, knock those down to maybe five or six or the core two or three that you really want to accomplish. And then if you get those done, you're going to feel a lot better about that business meeting than if you went in with all of these other different expectations set.
0: I say this to people all the time who are young and getting married. I say like the worst thing that you can do for your marriage is to think that the other person is actually going to fix you. Right. Or fix your life. And I don't mean to lower expectations, say marriage really sucks, you're gonna hate it. That's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about sort of unrealistic expectations about things. Yeah. And yeah, I got married older, so I was wise enough to know this thing isn't gonna fix me. And I think Betsy and I have had three fights our entire marriage, right? Right. And that would be the main reason. The other thing is there's a third lever, and it's actually I think the most groundbreaking thing that is in your book. That is when you talk about increasing or what you call homostasis, if something threatens the status quo, it's a negative. If something is better than the status quo or improves the status quo, it's a positive. But the status quo itself about our life is perhaps fiction. And that fiction comes from Your definition of self, and so let me explain your theory here, anything that you care about at all, anything that registers an emotion, does so because you have associated it with yourself. So you use the example of like, my puppy is here, Lucy. One night, Lucy went out to use the bathroom. It was two in the morning. I closed the door. She normally scratches on the door. I get back out of bed. I let her up. 30 minutes later, she's not scratching on the door. I get up. I realize the gate is open in the backyard. Lucy is now wandering the neighborhood at 2 a.m. I feel many things. Fear and sadness were the two main emotions. You would say, and I agree with you, that the reason I fear sadness and emotion is because I have associated Lucy with myself. In other words, I'm not worried about Lucy, I'm worried about myself. I'm not sad about Lucy, I'm sad about myself. And that is the only thing that can register emotion. So if I am a Seattle Seahawks fan, and hypothetically the Seattle Seahawks are in the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots, and they don't run the ball, and Russell Wilson throws a interception, and they lose the Super Bowl to Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, just hypothetically... <laughs> I would feel anger, sadness, <laughs> not because of the Seahawks and what they did, but because I have associated the Seahawks with myself.
3: Yeah, and it sounds cruddier than it is. because It does, because
0: it makes it sound unromantic. You don't love your wife, you only love yourself. You don't love your kids, you only love yourself. Except if you realize that's a freaking genius system to make us care about. The people around us. It doesn't diminish love and those things.
3: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And that's just how your simple nervous system can include all of the people and the things around you. Because you
0: are not them. You are you. Right.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Right. You're you. But at the same time, your definition of you, your mind's self, where your all of your expectations or preferences come from for your equation of emotion, your mind's self is your definition of stuff that is you. Because There's this process in our brain, you know, it's run by the limbic system, and the limbic system is the primitive reptile brain just above the brainstem, and it constantly checks all of our surroundings for threats. And it says, okay, is this a threat? Is this person a threat? Is this idea a threat? Is this headline a threat? Well, then a second question must be answered. Well, a threat to what, right? Okay, so now I need to have a laundry list of things that are me and the things that are not me so that I don't have to waste my time on threats that aren't me versus the threats that are me so if i see a leaf cutter ant over there crawling up the wall do i have leaves right that needs to be on my definition if i have leaves and that leaf cutter ant's a threat to me if i don't then i don't have a problem with that leaf cutter ant. well and they've proven this through fmri studies where jim Cohn at uva as a matter of fact was one of the first to do so he brought in two groups of folks and put one group in an fmri and said okay I'll give you a flash of light in your glasses zap you on the ankle we're going to watch your brain in between and so they gave the flash of light they watched the fear light up in the brain And then they zapped the ankle. So then they brought in another person next to the person in the fMRI and said, okay, this is a stranger. We're going to take the ankle zapper off of you. We're going to put it on the stranger. We're going to give you the flash. And then we're going to wait and watch your brain. And then we're going to zap the stranger. And they got it what they expected there, which was no fear. It's like no threat to self. It was somebody else they didn't even know.
0: Which if you stop the study there, you would say people are horrible. But then they did the next step.
3: Right, exactly. So he did another thing. That brought in a familiar which is a person you know like a person in your life a significant other or a dear friend or whatever and he said okay we're going to zap your friend now and then he shown the flash of light in the glasses paused to watch the brain and the same exact areas of the brain associated with self associated with fear negative anticipation showed up when they're going to zap somebody you love and so that basically proved that in the brain people that we know get mapped to our sense of self which is how our emotions arise associated with that person And so then Tiffany Burnett White started to prove that brand connections, Apple, Android get mapped to ourselves, favorite sports teams get mapped to ourselves, you know, anything that we think is a portion of our world gets mapped to ourselves, all of our stuff, ideas of politics and religion. Sam Harris did some amazing studies on that kind of stuff to prove why we get all worked up over that kind of stuff on Facebook and everywhere else. So all this stuff gets mapped to yourself, at which point. Then homeostasis kicks in and says, okay, all these things must be held at status quo or increased in value, which is our expectation or preference. And then our perceptions come in and how the perceptions measure those things that we care about. Then we have all of our emotional reactions.
0: Okay, so two things I want to hit on. The first is we've got expectations and then we've got perception of reality. Expectations are preferences and then perception of reality. Those two things, I think everybody listening to this would go, okay, I can adjust those. You know, in a situation, you know, Viktor Frankl would say he doesn't say it this way, but I do. He says find a redemptive perspective on your suffering. You know, when something bad happens, the immediate knee jerk reaction should say, well, well, how is this still making me better? And how is this still a good thing? I think we can all adjust expectations and we can all adjust perception of reality. But Sean, how do we adjust or understand our subjective sense of self? Most people would go through this life without really thinking. First of all, they never realize everything they care about is just mind mapped and associated with their self. They don't ever realize that. Right. And then the second thing that they don't realize is that it is entirely subjective. And what I mean by that is your sense of self and what you're responding emotionally to may in fact not be you at all. It may be just a fictional creation. Now here's where I'm gonna blow everybody's mind. You sometimes, when you're angry at your wife, you don't say, I am angry at my wife. You say, the me is angry at my wife.
3: Yes. What in God's name are you talking about? <laughs> All right, so there's two ways to help you realize, and these are really cool because both of them help you rewire your brain because of its hardwiring that already exists. So it's like you can try to self-sabotage this process and it won't even work. You're gonna change regardless of whether you want to or not, which is really cool. But the two things that happen, one is when you start to understand your emotional process and you start to see your emotional process in the way that we just spoke about it. Two awesome things happen. One is a thick black curtain comes down between you and the emotional response that you're having. So you start to get your control of your existence back because one of the first things that your limbic system does with a negative emotional reaction is shut down your thinking brain, your prefrontal cortex gets turned off. Yeah. So that's bad, especially if you're live in a professional world where you need to think your way out of a problem.
0: When does that part of our brain get turned off? Is it when we are angry or when we are sad or all the above? or When does it get turned off?
3: To varying degrees, immediately upon the limbic system starting to fire and bringing your attention into a negative emotional space.
0: Is that because it's a survival fight or flight mechanism that says, hey, turn off your rational brain, we're going to turn on the squirrel brain and get through this and make it through?
3: Yeah, exactly. Because 150 years ago, all the threats that we could experience were like a snake in the grass or a bear coming out of the woods or something like that, that we needed our legs to run from. And so we didn't want to waste any of our energy thinking. Amazing. Doesn't work today as well as it used to. Okay. So,
0: you know, we're a business. We help people clarify their message and we help people understand why people buy things. And one of the reasons we do that is we want to grow companies so that they can grow the middle class. The other reason is we feel like the wrong people have the microphone very often, and we want the right people to be able to clarify a message. Anyway, we deal a lot with marketing and branding. What do companies do from a branding perspective to get you to associate their products with their customer's sense of self? How do you program somebody to do that?
3: That's the key, right? That's what marketing's been trying to do for the last, uh, you know, a couple hundred years, I guess, or more than that. You know, you need to create an attachment into the self-map of your target customers. It needs to be important to them. It needs to be something that brings value to them or that increases value of something on their self-map already,
0: right? What's on their self-map?
3: Well, that's what you have to figure out, right? You have demographics, you have um, groups of people. So it's not all the same. Yeah, it's not all the same at all. You know, a lot of times, though, you can find those things that are common amongst a lot of people, such as, you know, improving their relationships with those around them or improving the lives of their kids, or you know something that's very common, you're gonna have a better time selling into something that touches the heartstrings, right? You wanna create that emotional bond, which is why these companies spend millions of dollars trying to create good feelings around you know, Coca-Cola. They don't ever say, hey, come drink our sweet, taste good drink. It's, hey, let's share a moment together. Hey, let's have this amazing experience that, oh, by the way, here's a big old Coke bottle in front of you to remind you that this can be a part of that experience, right?
0: we'll be right back with the rest of my interview with sean webb in just a moment my friend amy lacy started a company and in the first year she ran the company she lost a quarter million dollars she has a company called cauliflower Foods. she lost a quarter million dollars but she knew she had a cauliflower pizza crust that people were loving she knew she could scale it up a marketing agency came to her and said, Look, for twenty-five thousand dollars a month, we'll help you do this. And she said, Boy, you know, I'm already down quarter million. I know we can scope twenty-five thousand dollars a month, a lot of money. I've just heard about this company called Story Brand. I think I want to investigate that first and then I'll get back to you. She came to us she realized she really just needed to clarify her message and she could probably run most of her marketing by herself as long as her message was clear. She did clarify her message. She did run her marketing by herself and she did make $6 million the first year. The first year after the quarter million dollars, she made $6 million. The second year, which was last year, 2018, she made $20 million. That company is booming. She never hired that marketing agency for $25,000 a month. She does buy a lot of marketing. She handles it in house, $20 million. That's the difference. Here's what Amy did. She showed up at a live workshop. She clarified her message. Then she actually hired one of our private workshop facilitators and got her entire team around a table to clarify the message understand it, and then develop a plan to execute it. You need a private workshop for your company. Before you go spend a ton of money on marketing, you need a private workshop. Just go to storybrand.com slash private workshop, storybrand.com slash private workshop. Hire one of our facilitators. Don't go wasting a ton of money on marketing. Clarify your message. It worked for Amy. It has worked for hundreds and hundreds of other companies. It will work for you. Go to storybrand.com slash private workshop. Hire one of our facilitators today. Let's say somebody wanted to walk away from the self that is really making them
3: unhappy and destroying their lives. How do they start? The mind-hacking happiness way of kryptonite, of being able to step away from being emotionally manipulated by anyone and understanding the, the workings of the other people's minds has to do with being able to understand and see your mind. So we were talking about the thick black curtain of, you know, you being able to see the emotion, if you can understand and identify your expectation and preference and your perception, even in a moment of anger or upset or whatever it is, you're bringing down that thick black curtain between you and your emotional response. And then that's reminding your mind. There's a portion of your mind that says, okay, I have to keep definition of self accurate, else if I'm wrong, we could die. So it then says, well, wait a second. I thought I was that mess for a second. And now I'm that mess and the awareness that can see that mess.
0: Is that meta thinking?
3: Yep. That's okay. meta awareness. Meta awareness. that's place where your tooth can't bite itself. Your olfactory nerve can't smell itself. Your eyeball can't see itself without some distance in a mirror. There needs to be some space between a perceiver and the perceived thing. And so your mind says, well, wait a second now. I'm the emotional responses here. I'm my mind, but I'm not just that. I'm the awareness of my mind as well. And so yourself expands out a little bit. And so... Your problems that used to rock your boats don't rock your boats as much. The longer and more often you can do that. And then the other thing that happens is there's this magic button in your brain, in your right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, and your medial prefrontal cortex, that when you put an understanding to your emotion, it turns off your emotion in real time. They saw it happening live on the fMRI machine.
0: And there's tons of studies that prove this, that if you're angry and you acknowledge you're angry, the emotion, you call it down-regulates, right?
3: Yeah, totally. It down-regulates and turns off. And then there's some, you still have to uh, metabolize the adrenaline dump and some of the other things that happen in a, in a flash of anger. So it'll be you know 10 or 15 minutes before you're down to baseline again, but at least it'll stop creating those issues for you in your mind to be able to deal with, and you'll be able to get control of your prefrontal cortex and think your way out of the problem a lot quicker. Now, over time, the cool thing is with plasticity, this happens much more readily and much quicker, and your subconscious starts doing it for you. In other words,
0: you gain the muscles or you build the neuron pathways that you can get better at it. You build this muscle.
3: Exactly. So like, for instance, I've been working with these Navy SEALs who previously had some problems with some PTSD and some anger issues and things like that. Their anger triggers now are like almost unattainable. You can't even upset these guys at this point, which is amazing. And at the point that you can get in and start to understand how your mind works and start to take control of your mind. And even the things that at your subconscious level create your mess for you. Like we've had People write in to say, you know, I've cured my addictions because of being able to take control of my mind. And it's like, look, this isn't a book on addiction. It's not a book on PTSD, but at the point that you can take control of your mind and get yourself out of the way, get the processes that are inhibiting you out of your way, you can be a super parent. You can be a super business person, you know, an amazing executive leading a multimillion dollar company. You can be anything you want to be because you're no longer in your way. You have basically taken control of your mind, which is the most powerful tool in the universe that you have to create your awesome life. Sorry if I think that you need a manual for it.
0: <laughs> well, no, I, I think you've created what is closer to a manual than anything else. Let me ask you this. What is the difference between, let's say I walk into my office And we have quarterly objectives and somebody has decided to erase the quarterly objectives on the board and replace them with objectives of their own. What I don't think you're saying is that in order for Don Miller to not get angry, by the way, that's a really hypothetical situation. Nobody in my office has ever done that. (laughs) Uh, But let's say, you know, they did. What you're not saying is, Don, the way to not get angry or frustrated is just to not care. Right. and not have objectives at all, and go zero direction, and not even try to grow a company, and just sort of go, you know, let's just smoke a bunch of pot <laughs> and not think about it. Yeah, That's not what you're saying. So no. can you explain to me the difference between actually having an objective, going in a certain direction, trying to get there, and yet entering into meta thinking? What is the difference between what you're talking about and just not caring?
3: Right. So not caring, and there's a a strategy that you could employ. And I do suggest it in the book that if you have a lot of things on your self map, maybe it's time to, you know, get some of them off. Yeah. Move some of those things off and not care as much about, you know, you know, so you don't flip out when Netflix cancels your favorite show. You know, I mean, there's some things that we can release, Right. right. But for the important things in life, you don't have to release your expectations or preferences about those things at all. In fact, the better way to handle you know changes around you and Shifting goals and things like that is to be able to resolve those things in your mind when they come up without having to adjust your expectation or preference. And what so what we're talking about here is allowing yourself to care about those things, allowing the perception to occur, but at the same time, dealing with the fallout in a much quicker, more efficient way that shuts that off so it doesn't come back and nag you constantly. Because, you know, one of the basic things of the nervous system is that. When a portion of the nervous system sends one signal to another place, it likes to get a message back, says, hey, message received, understood that we're all good. And that's basically what's happening when the limbic system sends the information up to the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex says, "Okay, I understand this stuff. And then tells the limbic system shut off. Like when we were talking about the the portions of the brain that do that. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Well, when you can understand your angst with coming in and seeing the brand new goals on the whiteboard that have been changed midstream and they're moving the goalposts and stuff like that, you don't necessarily have to give up and just say, I don't care and whatever. You can still go to upper management and argue for, you know, let's not change those right now. Or, you know, we're on track to hit these other goals or whatever it is. You don't have to release and just not care and be ambivalent. You can basically process your anger and angst immediately so that you go into that next meeting with a clear head and clear conscience and a very clear goal for that conversation to occur because you've dealt with the emotional stuff. Because, by the way, when you go in there firing with, you know, emotional (laughs) ammunition.
0: you're going to make it worse. Yeah,
3: you're going to send them into a fight or flight and they're going to be defensive and they're not going to want to deal with your energy And so you're not gonna get the results you want anyway. So you need to be able to deal with that stuff within yourself, you know, without releasing what you care about, move forward with your objectives and goals. I'm new to what you're talking about, but it really works and it works actually
0: pretty quickly. But I still feel like a puppy that can't, quite use its back legs, you know.
3: <laughs> well, the good news is after you practice it for a while, it gets more automatic. Just like like when you practice shooting a basketball, or you practice trying to play baseball, or you practice doing crossword puzzles, or you practice playing the piano. It sucks at first. You're not great. Your feedback and your yeah. results are not super, and you get a little discouraged. But after you do that stuff for a while, then it becomes automatic. Muscle memory starts to build up, and you start to do these things without having to think about them. And the same thing happens with emotional regulation in your mind is that your subconscious will start to pick up on because you have to understand there are multiple levels of consciousness. When you think of, let's say,
0: yeah, yeah. you talk about that in the book.
3: Yeah. I say, let's picture an elephant and then let's picture, you know, putting that elephant pink with purple polka dots. Well, you didn't do that when you see that in your brain, when you see that image, you didn't do that. You caused the intention to occur, but then other levels of subconsciousness said, okay, okay, what's pink? What's purple polka dots look like? What's an elephant look like? We need to build that whole thing. And then the boom, the image appeared in your brain. Well, those are multiple levels of subconscious that are working with you. And so when you start to pass down the intention that, hey, let's handle this emotional stuff a lot quicker so that we can get through it and get back to work, it starts doing it for you automatically over time, which is an amazing, amazing transition. None of us are immune from this,
0: right? So just because I'm saying, I've got friends who love Trump and I'm conflicted about, do they love Trump or do they love Jesus? Which one is more associated with themselves? I sometimes ask this question, how could you associate more with Trump than with Jesus? But let's not pretend I'm not doing something and what I've done perhaps without knowing it is I consider especially in political opinions pragmatism and objectivity is what I associate with myself so I do have a tribe it's a small tribe of people who are neither Republicans really or Democrats they just want the middle class to grow and have more money and I refuse to join your team if you guys are gonna do this stupid thing and I refuse to join your team if you're gonna do this stupid thing right but that in itself is a team and that energy, is coming out of my sense or understanding of self. Yes. So is it good for us to go around and be very careful what we associate with self? And is there some sort of filter that you have that you said, you know what, that is really tempting, but it's not healthy for me to associate that with myself. I'm going to reject it. First of all, that in itself sounds like meta-thinking, right? Is it? Yes. And then do you have a personal filter in which you do that?
3: I do. I'm, you know, regarding attachments of self, I kind of see the self as kind of just, it's a survival mechanism of the brain. It's a laundry list of things that my brain wants to point to when it wants to define me. And I know from, you know, like even a deeper spiritual existence that this is just piled on top of the the real true existence that I have beneath all that stuff. And so I try to remain truthful to the deeper truth within me, the me that exists beyond just the mind's noise. And so when I try to mindfully decide what things I'm going to put onto my self-map, I'll ask myself a question, okay, so does this serve like the greater good of all mankind is a good one that I try to use. You know, you might think, oh, well, you know, he's a, he's a lefty tree hugger. You know, there are a lot of things that get really complex about, you know, giving away entitlements and things like that sometimes don't help people and they aren't, you know, greater good. There's like a limitation of, of a lot of things that can occur that become very complex in there. But, yeah, I just I look at things and I say, is this going to serve the greater good? And then I try to do a bunch of math on all the potential outcomes of certain planks and things like that with politics. And then I try to figure out where I sit on a certain candidate or a certain position or whatever but I'm very much like you It's kind of the middle of the road, individual analyses of the different things that come up to make a decision uh, based on, you know, what the world is giving us. But I try to just say, OK, if this is going to be the least harmful to the most folks, then I'll be for that.
0: It's comforting for me to hear that you haven't completely rejected the idea of self at all. No, I mean,
3: it's something we have to live with.
0: We have to live with, and, and maybe it's God's design that it is actually quite beneficial in terms of the survival of the species. Let me ask you this, because I know from your book, and actually I don't know from your book, but certainly from previous interviews that i have watched you on, you grew up evangelical. I did. As did I. I would now say I don't think I'm an evangelical anymore, although I don't know that any of my theology has actually changed, (laughs) so I don't know what that means. Still a fan of Jesus. Yeah, I'm a a fan of Jesus. (laughs) And this is extra credit. We do not have a spiritual organization. This is a business podcast. These are business people. But I'm just curious, what would you say you are now in terms of spirituality? Because you talked about the spiritual sense of self, and it, it seems like your journey, because you think the way you think, I would have predicted that you have gone into agnosticism, or just this sense of, hey, we can't really know. When I die, we'll find out. If anybody lets me come back and tell you, I'll come back and tell you, but we can't know. That's where I would have predicted that your mind would have gone. It sounds like it hasn't gone there. No. Where has it gone?
3: You know, there was this group of folks uh, that were directly after the time of Jesus, there were these Gnostics, right? And the, the whole basis of their movement was that they knew, you know, Gnosticism is knowledge.
0: Is that the the, the gospel of Thomas? Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. And so it
3: was a knowing that, you know, a spiritual energy that permeates absolutely everything throughout all space and time does exist. It's a knowledge. It's like I've transitioned from faith, not to need the faith anymore, into a knowledge of the whole thing being intelligent and the whole thing being conscious. And this is a
0: high level of spiral dynamics, right? Or a low level, I don't remember if it goes up or down. Right. Let me ask you a yes or no question, which I know you probably don't like that because it doesn't allow for nuance, but then I'm going to ask a follow-up question which will make it make sense. All right. When Sean Webb dies, is Sean Webb's sense of self gone?
3: Well, the physical sense of self, certainly. I mean, the, the meat suit sense of self that it says, you know, I'm Sean, I'm a male, I'm, you know.
0: But are you having conscious experiences in which you identify as the person who was formerly Sean Webb? Right. Which is really funny because after Prince died, he probably went, I'm the person who was formerly identified with the person who was formerly identified as Prince. <laughs> but you're, do you, you see what I'm saying? Do you think that that's
3: going to exist? That's a meta joke, by the way. If you Right, yeah. <laughs> Here's what I believe will happen to me is that, you know, we're definitely connected to consciousness all over the place. And, the, and science is even suggesting that we are through our microtubules or our neurons and that's where all the magic happens and yada yada yada. So there's going to be a portion of my existence that goes away and that'll be, you know, my individual personal existence that's connected with this quote unquote meat suit or body or whatever it is right. that I then make room for whatever's next that can adapt to the changing environment that this earth is. I think it's an amazing system by the way that's been set up that we yeah, yeah. are impermanent and we get out of the way of whatever you know, comes next that can handle the changes in the environment. That's awesome you know, there's a portion that because I've been connected the whole time, because my memories and because my feelings and because my spiritual existence is connected to the non-local, I think that there's a portion of that that remains. And, you know, that's what we've been calling heaven, so to speak, is that when, you know, our existence continues and this is just a portion of it. And when we're done, we continue.
0: And I think I already know the answer to this question because it's obvious that that does not terrify you. And here's what I mean by that. The whole sense of self, the self construct, the false self, whatever, it's a survival mechanism. Yeah. The whole purpose of that survival mechanism is to keep it alive. Yep. And this idea that we would lose our meat suit and that we would join a collective kind of consciousness in which we would no longer have a self identity is in a sense the death of that mechanism. Yeah. So wouldn't it be normal then to be terrified of the next evolution of spiritual existence? You use the word amazing. Isn't it amazing that when I die, I can bury myself with a dogwood seed and become a tree? In part, yes, that's amazing. In part, you don't actually get to sit and watch the dogwood tree go because you're dead. Right. <laughs> so, <there's, laughs> so, there's, so it's a mixed bag, right? So I'm just wondering where you're getting this sense of peace about it. Evangelicals would get peace because they're going to go to heaven and they're going to be with Jesus. It's fascinating to me, though, that when you actually look at the scriptures, the way I understood them, it was always confusing to me because... There's all sorts of at least poetic and metaphorical pointings toward this idea that we will be the Bride of Christ. Well, if we are the Bride of Christ, that certainly sounds like a collective consciousness... Identifying as a single entity. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's what's happening because right. that could just be a poetic metaphor. And the Evangelicals have almost no room for nuance. You know, like they are so affected by the Enlightenment, it's right. ridiculous. Yeah. And the Enlightenment was a good thing. Don't write me and say the Enlightenment was a bad thing. I'm just <laughs> saying it's a mixed bag. <laughs> anyway, Sean, it sounds like you're okay with whatever's next. Can we just say you are? I am,
3: yeah. <laughs> I'm a person who walks outside and I'm thankful that a comet hasn't slammed into our our planet overnight <laughs> and that we get to do all of this amazing stuff again. Now, that is low expectations and high perception of reality. Right, right exactly. There. <laughs> totally. So my expectation has been exceeded at this point every day. That you know, I, I mean, I, I get to go outside. The universe owes you nothing more. Right. And I get to go outside and I get to experience the amazing fact that trees Are around us that have developed Mm. you know over time and that I get to watch that amazing natural thing occur and that birds are flying around and have been here for millions of years you know and so I'm a witness of all of this grace that has occurred through this intelligence that springs forth from absolutely nothingness from this void of quantum mechanics that is the the process for which we evolve and become whatever's next I love that. Yeah. I love going outside and just being and seeing and being here, regardless of, you know, the crap that's going on in my life at the moment, whether or not it's good or bad or whatever, It's the fact that I get to experience that. I get to experience the highs and the lows and I get to be here and I get to feel the sunshine on my face and I get to feel the shower, the hot shower on a cold winter's day and all of this amazing stuff. That's a blessing. That's an amazing thing for every moment. I mean, I'm sitting here and we're having a great conversation, connecting, and other people are getting positive things from this. That's an amazing experience for absolutely everybody involved, you and me included, the producer sitting next to you, the dog sitting next to you having a fun time because we're having such positive energy. (laughs) You know, the people who are listening laughing right now because we're having a good time. That's an amazing experience. And if you can tap into that almost every moment of every day, then how could your life be better?
0: Sean, can we be friends? Yeah. it's half the reason I wanted to do the interview. Yeah. (laughs) The book is called Mind Hacking Happiness, and it's wonderful. I'm probably going to read this one five or six times. I think it's just fantastic, and I think you, by the way, are very good for the world. Oh, thanks. Hopefully, 200 years from now, what we're talking about is something that everybody understands, Yeah, and it's something that... They'd say, hey, you need to just do some meta thinking on that. And they just go there easily. Yeah. But it's going to take people who communicate very clearly and put the cookies on a lower shelf and help us all understand. And right now that
3: person is you.
0: He's my new friend. His name is Sean Webb. His book is Mind Hacking Happiness. Sean, thank you for spending an hour with us.
3: Thank you. I appreciate the time.
0: Mind-bending.
2: Seriously. Yeah. I mean, really mind-bending. <laughs>
0: yeah. I hope everybody, you know, maybe this is one of those things I'm geeking out on that nobody else No, gets. I
2: don't think so. I think this is like one of those things that has the potential to be a game-changer in I think people's so. lives. And I yeah. think,
0: you know, like I said, hopefully it's not 200 years, but hopefully 50 years from now. People say, hey, you should do some meta-thinking about that. You should remove yourself from yourself and analyze yourself as a creature that thinks it's being objective, but is actually being quite subjective. And maybe the self that you think is yourself is a piece of fiction.
2: Yeah, just that. pretty huge.
0: You know, practically, just in terms of adjusting the dials, lowering expectations, raising this awareness of the goodness around you. We've just used that recently, Betsy and I, we bought a house and the tile in the bathroom floor, whoever put the grout in, the house is super well built, wonderful. Whoever did the grouting that day didn't do a good job. Uh So five years into a brand new house, we're having to replace the tile. That means this is our master bathroom. We have to go live upstairs and sleep on (laughs) queen beds with two dogs and all this kind of stuff. It would be easy to have a bad attitude about that. Yeah, Because of what Sean says in this book, it never even occurred to me to have a bad attitude about it. We literally packed up suitcases and moved them 100 (laughs) feet across the house and upstairs. And the whole time, Betsy and I were like, it's a slumber party. Uh-huh. Not only do we get a slumber party, <laughs> yeah. we actually get to see how our guests live when they're yes, here. Yeah. And they we're going, you know what, we could use some artwork in this room. This uh-huh. is a pretty boring room. We've never slept up here. You know, you heard him at the end of the interview. I'm yeah. just grateful. I'm grateful that there's a hot shower. I just I can't believe the yeah. magic of this experience. Oh gosh. I think it might be my favorite story brand mm. podcast ever. Mm. Listen, if you got friends who are hijacked by their emotions, would you tell them about this? Yeah. Just tell them about this podcast. Send them this podcast, because I think we all need a dose of this. I think it'll help. I really do. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep, Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a StoryBrand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to achieve Zen Buddhist inner peace.